We have been in a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. This is the last one of five. Um, I'm in the been in a class all week at Truett Seminary. I'm doing my doctorate, and our, uh, a lot of our study has been in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're talking about hermeneutics and homiletics, which is the interpretation and then the preaching of Scripture. And um, many of the, my fellow pastors who are part of this are also preaching 1 Corinthians in their churches, and one of the pastors was saying he's going to just, just getting ready to start a series on 1 Corinthians, and he said, I'm going to do about 12 weeks. And I was like, whew, that's all that's a lot of weeks in 1 Corinthians. And then I thought, well, I mean, it is and it isn't. We're flying through at a very high level, five weeks and 16 chapters, and um, moving through some major movements of it. And, and you could spend a lot more time in the detail of this text. In fact, you could spend a lot more time in the detail of almost all of the Scripture texts. I don't know if you've ever been one of those Bible readers who's like, I'm going to read a chapter a day or two chapters a day or something. And you get there and you start reading and you just get stuck and stopped at one verse. And then you do one of two things. You either ignore the impulse and you just keep pushing on through because you've got verses to read. Or you stay there and you find that God has something for you there right in that one verse. It's okay to stop. (laughs) Unless you're reading a one-year Bible and then you've got a pace to keep But scripture is like that. The depths of it are incredible. There is a lot in this text. In 1 Corinthians, we have looked at it in a couple of major sections. 1 Corinthians is a roadmap of sorts for a new Christian community. There are these new believers who are living in Corinth, which is a Greek and Roman city. It is a place that is um, full of commerce and full of worldly values, self-centeredness, and living it up, and, and kind of wild times. The Corinthian Christians have been called to do something different, to live differently, to be different. And they've been taught by the Apostle Paul, who helped plant their church and spent time there with them. He was there a year and a half, and then he went on about his missionary journey, on to other places and other areas and communities to raise up new Christian communities. And he has gone, and some troubles have come up. They're struggling with a variety of issues, and Paul gets word about the issues that they're facing, and he writes them this letter, and it is a roadmap of sorts. It is an explanation of where to go and how to go and how to address things, what what road to take and when, when and where to go, how to be. Paul addresses a number of things that he has heard about, the struggles that they've been having. They, the first sermon, we talked about the divisions in the church. There were people that had different voices of authority in their lives. They were listening to different people. They had been taught by different people, and they kind of argued back and forth about who was really authoritative. It's, those were Christian teachers and Christian voices, but not so different from those of us that pick different news channels and news outlets for our media, and we would say, well, this channel says this, well, this channel says this, and my authority is this one, and my authority is this one, and it leads people in community to a place of significant disagreement, yes? That had happened with them. His advice to them was, keep your eyes on Christ. Remember, it's not really about the individual teacher who has taught you and led you, but it's really about all of us following Jesus together. Then he goes into some sections where he's talking about some very um, bodily carnal things that they're struggling with food and sex. 
how to do, what to do, what's okay, what's not. They sort of had this view that they're very spiritual beings and what I do in my body doesn't really matter. And Paul said, yes, yes, it does matter. Your body's the Lord's, food is the Lord's, other people are the Lord's, and what you do with those things does, in fact, matter. He gives them directions and instructions on how they might live together as they sort through those problems. Then we came last week to a section on spiritual gifts. There's a whole section, a variety of chapters, several chapters that are about living together as the body of Christ, the worship gathering, what they do, what's appropriate and in order when they gather for worship, for the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to each person and the fact that they ought to use them and they ought not have jealousy about the gifts that other people are given that are different from the gifts that they have been given. Some people are a foot and some people are an eye and some people are an ear and We need to hear and see and walk. So use your gifts, he says. We come then to chapter 15, where the focus is then on the resurrection. Because it seems that people are still struggling with, you know, how to live in this world. And the advice of the Corinthians really was, like, live big because this is all there is. You might as well enjoy it. And Paul says, no, live right because this is just the beginning, and the best is yet to come. He spends time talking about the resurrection, because it seems like people aren't sure if it really matters. They're not really sure if you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to be a part of this Christian community. They're not really sure if it matters what you believe about your body and your life after death. And it's become a contention among them and in community together, And Paul hears about it, and he's going to clarify some things. You heard it in the verses that that Tug just read. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He is raised from the dead, so how can you say he's not? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. What Paul is saying is, hey, all this hard work that you're doing to live as a community together, if Christ is not raised and the resurrection is not real, you are wasting your time. Pack it up and go home. You too. Us too. If the resurrection is not a real deal, we don't need to be doing this. You can find something else to do on Sunday morning and with your gifts and your time and all of the other things that you give to support the life of the church. If there's no resurrection, this does not matter. Well, gosh, that sounds pretty strong. Well, yeah. Christ was a a failed Messiah in the eyes of most people. He came, uh, the one who was supposedly proclaimed to lead people into freedom, to overthrow their captors. They were under oppression by uh, by the Roman rule and authority, and so surely he was going to raise an army and take over and free them. Surely, if Christ was really the Messiah, he would come with power, and he would have riches and acclaim, and he would rub elbows with the who's who's and what's what's, and he would be a a, a pinnacle in their society. Jesus wasn't that at all. He was rejected by those people. They didn't really want anything to do with him, and in fact, Jesus willingly spent time with tax collectors and sinners. He ate in the homes of people who were despised and who were cast out, people who were considered unclean. Those were Jesus' people. Surely this isn't the Messiah people were expecting. He, rose, he didn't bring an army. 
He didn't take over. He didn't have any display of military might and power. He did nothing that was powerful in the eyes of most people of his time. He was a failure. And we know he was a failure because he was hung on a cross, which is folly and shame. If you are hung on a cross, it is that you are the most despised of all people, that you deserve that punishment. And so if you said that our hero of our faith is that guy who was put on a cross, well then you too were a fool. That's how most people viewed them anyway. Jesus surely didn't do what he was supposed to do and then they killed him for it. So what kind of leader is that? Paul said, if you believe that that's the end, if there's no resurrection, well, then you are a fool. This is all a waste of your time. If you don't believe this, go home. He says, but you can believe it. You should believe it. In fact, he says, I brought to you a message that was most important, and I had received it, and I received it from people that we can count on. He says in chapter 15, starting in verse 3, he says, I brought this message to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he's saying, the scripture, not in the New Testament, not the gospel, so those weren't there yet. Paul is saying, all those Hebrew scriptures that said someone would come and would die for the sins of the world. Jesus did that. He goes on and he says, and then he was buried And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's saying there was one who was going to come and who was going to save us, and he was going to be buried, and then he was going to be raised from the dead. He did that. He did what all of those prophetic texts said would happen when the Messiah come. He fulfilled them. So he's saying not only is he the one who was expected, but then all these people saw him. He was dead. He was really dead. They laid him in a tomb. He was buried, and he was gone. And then three days later, he was alive again. And we know this because he appeared. He appeared first to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve, his friends, the disciples who had spent all that time with him. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. At one point in time, he showed up in front of a massive crowd of people, alive, having resurrected. And Paul says, and most of them are even still alive. Paul's saying to them, you can go ask them. The eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive again, they are still living among you, and they will testify. They saw him. Resurrection is real. And then he says, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. Paul encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. On the Damascus road, he had this incredible spiritual encounter with the risen Christ that totally changed his life around. Paul says, I testify that I have seen the risen Christ, and let me tell you that there's a whole bunch of other people who saw him with their own eyes, and you can count on it. You too can count on it. This is the testimony. All of those people would have been fools. Nobody would make up a lie like that. The crucified Messiah, we saw him alive, but that's too risky. There's no conspiracy of people to go out and say, no, really, he's alive. No, he really is alive. They risked their lives for it. Many of them died for it. Well, does this all really matter? Paul says, you better believe it does. 
This is the pinnacle, the cornerstone, the chief value of our faith. There was a time that I was at the airport um, going, I'd, I'd been at home in Kansas City um, on a, co- a break during college and had, um, was at the airport and was flying back to, to Waco. I went to Baylor. And it was somewhere 2001, 2002. Um, it, it was in the days after 9-11, which tw- 20 years on Saturday. Um, we were at the airport and the lady in front of me was talking back and forth, and it wasn't just a quick check-in. It was a very prolonged exchange. Something was wrong. Well, eventually I figured out what was going on. She had gotten to the airport without a driver's license, and she was hopeful, maybe, possibly, somehow, somebody could call someone or they could find out some other way of verifying who she was. 2001, early 2002, no way. You weren't getting on the plane without your driver's license. I'm sorry, ma'am. She's like pleading and hoping and looking for any other option. And she, she finally finds, you know, the lady's like, well, you can, we can book you another flight. You can drive home and get it and come back to the airport. She says, I'm from Nebraska. I live almost six hours away from here. I can't drive home and get my license and get back here and get on a plane and get to where I'm going. She hung her head and she was walking up and she's like, this was all for nothing. I don't know where she was going. I don't know what she was trying to get to. She just felt utterly defeated in that moment. She had gotten up early. She had packed her stuff. She had something planned. She was going to go meet some people or do something significant. And she got there all ready to go. And she didn't have the one thing that would let her do it. She walks away. I don't know if you've ever done anything where you've prepared and invested and spent time and effort and and poured life into something and it didn't come to fruition and it is a total defeat. Sometimes that happens in our relationships. Sometimes that happens in our, uh, our work. We invest in something with so much of our heart and our soul, and it just doesn't come to pass. That's some pretty big disappointment. Paul says it this way. He says, if, if this is us, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. You're still in your sin. He says, if we only have this life, if this life living what we see right here is all we have, is all we have our hope in Christ, then we above all are people to be, the people most to be pitied. Paul says people should pity us. If this is all there is, then we should pack it up and go home. But you know it matters. You've stood at a graveside and you've thought, please, Lord, let it be true. You've looked into the face of someone you love when the life has gone out of them and you've thought, please tell me this isn't the end. This matters. It matters for the person that you love that has died, and it matters for us who live here now, too. It matters not just in a funeral setting, but it matters at work, in our relationships, when we suffer, when we struggle, we look around and we think, is this really all there is? 
only there's something more. When we have to exercise integrity to make hard choices and it costs us something, we hope there's something more. When we need hope, we sure hope that this is true. I got checked in for my flight and I went, was headed down towards the terminal and I saw that lady and she was on a phone and she was talking excitedly and she hung up the phone and I guess she had recognized that I was the person standing behind her because she turns and she looks at me and she says, guess what? Somebody's going to my house to get my driver's license and they're going to meet me halfway and there's a chance. She was so excited. I guess someone was going to help her out and do that and drive halfway and meet her and maybe she would still get on a plane that day and get to whatever it was that she was hoping to make it to. She had hope. She was willing to go through all sorts of wild trouble over the next many hours because there was a chance that she was going to get to go where she was trying to go. Paul says this stuff matters. Everything else that's been laid out in 1 Corinthians, all of this stuff about here's how you live together, here's how you sacrifice, here's how you, here's how you walk along someone that thinks and believes something vastly different from you. Here's how you show love to other people who are struggling. Here's how you set aside at at times your freedom and your choice because you're trying to bless somebody else so that they might see Jesus. He said you do all that because you have a hope that is bigger and better than anything this world offers. I know you might not be able to see it with your eyes, but it is worth believing in. There's a scene in Harry Potter, first book, first movie. Book's better than the movie, always is true. But there's a scene where young Harry is, uh, has an opportunity to go off to Hogwarts to school for wizards. And, and Harry lives with his aunt and uncle, who are terrible, who are not nice to him because he's weird and different. And he has an opportunity for something else. He gets a letter and an invitation to Hogwarts, and he gets a train ticket, and he's supposed to go to a certain train station on a certain day and get on a train that takes him to Hogwarts, the school. His uncle, Uncle Vernon, takes him to the airport, or takes him to the train station, and they get there, and (laughs) Uncle Vernon says to him, oh, where's your, where's your stop, Harry? And Harry says, um... I'm supposed to go to station nine and three quarters. And Uncle Vernon just laughs at him. There's no nine and three quarters. You fool. (laughs) Good luck. And he leaves Harry on the curb and off he goes. Harry goes into the train station and is talking to people. And he's there at, at this place and he's trying to figure out where he goes. And he finds nine and he finds ten. But there's no three, nine and three quarters. Nine and three quarters is a big brick wall. It's not a train stop or station at all. And he doesn't know what to do. Because he thinks this is where he's supposed to go, but he can see that he can't get there. Well, there's another family that comes along, and it's somebody who actually becomes some of his very closest friends, Ron's family. Um, The Weasleys come up, and and Mrs. Weasley is coming with a bunch of her children, and they're all coming, pushing carts with trunks and, and belongings, and Harry sees that they've got stuff kind of like he's got, and these kids are about his age. In fact, Ron is his age, and, and he's looking at them and thinking, maybe they're trying to go where I'm trying to go, and he sees one of them has an owl. That's like a sign and a symbol to him that, that oh, because he has an owl. 
And he's thinking, okay, they're going where I'm going. Where are they going? Mrs. Weasley goes, off you go, off you go, and she sends her sons in. And there's this brick wall, and Harry's confused, and he doesn't know where to go and how to get there. And they have this interaction, and, and Ron's mom looks at, at Harry and says, well, you just take a run at it. And he's thinking, what? It's a brick wall. We can't, this, I, I can't see it. I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. And so she sends the other boys on through first, Percy, and then the twins. They take their belongings, and they do. They just walk and run and, through the wall. And the amazing thing is they kind of disappear into the brick wall, and they're gone. They vanish before Harry's eyes. And he's thinking, what is this? And it's his turn. And he's standing there with his stuff. And she says, go on. If you're scared, you should run a bit. So Harry does. But he's at this moment of decision where he's thinking, do I do something that looks utterly foolish? Do I run at the thing I just can't even see? And trust that this thing that looks like a wall, a total end, is not actually that. And so he does. He takes off running, and he finds that as he would have hit the wall, he finds himself in a whole new room. And there's the Hogwarts Express, the train that's going to take him off to school. And it is just the beginning of the most incredible story. My friends, (laughs) resurrection is just the beginning of the most incredible story. I know we can't see it. Others have gone before us. We don't get to see what happens when they go through it. We did for Jesus, though. He came back and he showed himself to to all of those other people, and he said, I'm here, and it's real, and you're coming where I'm going. But you still got to take your stuff and run at the wall. (laughs) And it might look like foolishness, but my friends, it is victory. I'm going to cry now because I cry every time I read these verses at funerals. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 54, when this perishable body puts on imperishability, when this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He finishes it up and he says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. My friends, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This life of discipleship, this life of wrestling with the sin that clings and holds us tight sometimes, it's not in vain. You're seeking to show love and kindness and charity and and faithfulness to other people who don't reciprocate those kinds of values or that kind of love. It's not in vain. Your investment in things that will come to fruition long after your lifetime, it's not in vain. This amazing gift is our hope in Jesus Christ. Paul says, you can do the stuff I've asked you to do because Jesus and his resurrection and his life is real. Paul, earlier in the gospel, had said, follow me as I follow Christ. 
That's the source. That's where we're able to do the things of the life that Christ has called us to. That's because we've received from him the gift of love and, and the life that Jesus offers to us. That's how we can say yes to this. You are invited to receive from him today. God may be doing something in your heart and in your life today, and I would invite you to respond to it. If it is stepping forward in some way in faith, if it's in committing your life to following him, if it's saying, I think I need to re-examine my priorities or the way I'm living, do it. If you need to invite somebody to pray with you, I would love to pray with you. If you have questions about any of those faith things, I would be happy to share a conversation. To, if you're looking at that wall and you're thinking, I just don't quite get it. It's okay. Good questions to ask. Let's spend time together. If you want to make this your church home, you're invited. We would love to be that for you. Consider the things that Christ is calling to you. Receive this blessing and benediction. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.